If you need a Bible, would you raise your hands? The ushers will get those to you. If you have your Bible, would you take it out? And let's go ahead and hold it up and make our declaration of faith. Hold it up nice and high with me and say, let's all say this together. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen. You all sound wonderful. Would you remain standing as we go to the text from which my assignment comes today? We are going to the Gospel of John again, as you know. And uh, we have been talking about the seven miracle signs of Jesus that are presented to us in the Gospel of John. And our series is called He Amazes Me because that's what Christ ought to do every day of our lives. Amen. We ought to fall more in love with him, more in awe of him, more amazed by him. And by the way, if you need a miracle, miracles have been happening. People have been believing God for great things in this series. One lady, I hope it's okay for me to share, she went, she had a lump on her breast, and uh, one doctor, doctor said, it's, you know, you you know what it is, and we got to get, we have this thing removed, and she said, I'm not, but by the time I leave here today, that's going to be gone. And uh, the doctor thought she was crazy. She went for an ultrasound. The ultrasound people couldn't find it. Amen. So praise the Lord. God is good. Another another person sent me a text this week. Had to have shots in the back because such spinal problems that they have. Couldn't sleep. Couldn't bend. Nothing like that. We prayed for her. That particular night was the first night in over a month that she slept. And she's had no pain ever since. Isn't that amazing? God is doing amazing things. If you need God to do a miracle in your life, that is the purpose of this series is to encourage us to believe God for the things that are impossible with us, but everything is possible with Jesus. Amen. And so today, John chapter number six, the fifth miracle sign in the gospel of John, beginning in verse number 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over to the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was on land the land that they were going to. Today in our series, He Amazes Me, I want to talk to you from the subject, the water walker. How many of you know that's who Jesus is? He is the water walker in our lives. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for open hearts and open ears to the word of God. I pray to have free course in every life in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of God. Well, you might recall from last week that Jesus has just got done doing an extraordinary miracle. All of his miracles were extraordinary. But the one we looked at last week was the feeding of the 5,000 households or men. People often assume that the crowd was only 5,000, but it actually says 5,000 men, and the word in the original language is heads of household. And so we learned that the crowd that he fed was not just 5,000. In Jewish time or in Bible times, they uh, counted 
counted the blessing of God by the size of the family. And we just estimated and said, let's say everybody had four kids. It was not uncommon for them to have 12 kids in Bible times. There was an old woman who lived in a shoe. She had so many kids, she didn't know what to do. No, I'm just playing. Um, anyway, they had lots and lots and lots of kids. And so if they each had four kids, then the crowd would have been at least 30,000. And Jesus fed this 30,000 people with a little boy's lunch, five crackers and two small sardines. And what I love about Jesus, proof that he was Italian, he fed everybody until they were stuffed. Do you remember that? And and then they gathered up 12 basketfuls of the bread that remained. And, and we surmised and we said that this could have possibly been the godlike return on the little boy's childlike faith. Because whenever we express childlike faith in Christ, where we believe that our Father can do anything and nothing is too difficult for Him, we can expect godlike returns in our life. So this huge crowd of 30,000 people have witnessed Jesus do this, and now they want to take him to be their king by force. And and the reason why they want to do this is because they are under Roman tyranny and they figured if Jesus can do these things, if he becomes our king, we're going to be the rulers and we're not going to be under oppression anymore. And what they were really looking for is very much like what the world is looking for today. They were looking for a political savior. They were looking for the government to be their savior. Now, I understand that the government is messed up, and I understand that the world is messed up, and I understand that, that, that we have to vote for godly principles and all that. But can I tell you, the government, there is no political savior that is ever coming because that's not what Jesus was. Jesus was our savior, came to save us from our sins. And they missed that. They didn't realize that he had not come just to feed their soul, just to feed their bellies, but also to feed their souls. And so now they want to take him by force and they want to make him into a political savior. And so Jesus gets out of there and he goes up into the mountain by himself to pray. And by the way, that's where your power comes from, right? If you're empty and you need power, pray. If you're spiritually exhausted, if you're mentally exhausted, if the world has kind of sucked all of the energy out out of you and you need to be filled again, What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray. Prayer is our lifeline. Prayer is the place where God impregnates us with everything that he is full of so that we can conquer the world that we live in. And so if you're hungry, if you're thirsty, if you're dry, go to the cup, drink, go to the well, get a good drink, drink in the power of prayer and watch yourself get recharged. And so Jesus, he's exhausted, by the way. Remember at the beginning of the feeding of the 5,000, the Bible says that he reclined on the mountainside. He thought he was going to get some rest. And so he is spent. And what does he do when he's spent? He goes to prayer. Prayer is a place that we can enter into the rest of God. And when he goes there, I love this about Jesus. He tells the disciples, he says, get into the boat and, and go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and I'll meet you there. Now here's the only problem with this is that Jesus has given them the boat, so how's he going to get there? I don't know about you, but Jesus is a bad man. Jesus is like, you take the boat, I'll meet you there. I'll walk on the water. I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead. I don't need a boat. I don't need you to an airplane. I don't need anything to get from here to there. How many of you know God can move wherever God wants to move and on whatever God wants to move on? And so Jesus tells him, go ahead over and I'll meet you there. And I'm not sure that they got this though. 
because when they saw Jesus walking on the water, and he told them, he said, he said, I'll meet you there, which basically meant I'm walking on the water. But when they saw him walking on the water, they squealed like little girls. The Bible says that they, they got afraid and they thought it was a ghost. And their reaction is the first place that we can look for insight into how to be amazed by God. We can sum up their reaction in one phrase, ghost or God. They were contemplating whether this could actually be Jesus, although he said, I'll meet you on the other side, which meant I'm going to walk on the water. Can this actually, can this man actually walk on water? They're thinking in their mind, this is humanly in Possible. Matter of fact, scientists have asserted that if we were able to run 67 miles per hour or faster, we could actually walk on water. I tried it once. I only got up to 66 miles an hour, and so I, I, I sunk. That was a joke, y'all. Some of you just like, time to wake up. It's church time, everybody. Anyway, scientists have asserted that, not, to, but that is humanly impossible for us to do. I think the fastest person who's ever run has run like 23 miles an hour or something like that. But, but not to mention the fact that not only is it humanly impossible, but the wind and the waves were intense. Scholars who are familiar with the Sea of Galilee have, uh, have, have reported that suddenly and out of nowhere, waves as big as between five and 20 feet high can all of a sudden just shoot up and make it very treacherous in order to cross. And so Jesus is not just walking on the water. He's doing it against the might of the waves. Now, I grew up on the Jersey Shore, near the Jersey Shore. And so we would go to the beach often. And one of the things that we, we did as be, before I got older and realized how stupid it was, how many of you know when you get older, you get smarter, right? And there are certain things you used to do when you were younger, you never do when you're older. Like going in the ocean. I used to do that when I was young. The stupidest thing that you could ever do. There's sharks in the water, especially today. How many of you know there's sharks in the water? I mean, especially like on the Gulf Coast. We were there a couple weeks ago, Naples, Florida. And I seen this dude, he was just swimming out there. I'm like, yo, yo, sharks, come on in, come on in. Anyway, we used to swim in the water when, when we were younger. And, and, and in Jersey, sure, you'd get these waves and they'd break on you. And you'd be swimming out and a big wave would come and it would overtake you. And for a second, you'd be sucked underneath the water waiting for the wave to go by. And you'd get disoriented a little bit. You wouldn't know where you were. And you'd just kind of just wait for the wave to pass. But there was no fighting against that particular wave. But here Jesus is. He's not only not only not fighting the waves, but he's walking on the water when there is waves that are between 5 and 20 feet high. And this is no hop, skip, and jump to go where the disciples were. The scripture says they had rowed out three to four miles from the shore. So he has not just braved the waves. He has turned their white caps into a red carpet and he's strutting down to where the disciples were like a Hollywood star would be saying, how you like me now? He has done miracles before on this sea above the surface and below the surface of the waters. He has had the miracle catch a fish below the surface of the waters. He has spoke to the storm. Peace be still. But now he's walking on the water as if to say everything that can possibly come against you in life is under my authority and under my feet. We need to realize that he has all authority. And if we will receive the authority that he has, there is nothing that is impossible. And so Jesus is walking there. And he's showing his mastery over the things that we cannot even fathom mastering. For instance, weather. You know, all we can do is predict it. 
And most of the time we're wrong about our predictions about the weather. I gotta get a weatherman job, by the way. They're the only people that can be wrong 67% of the time, but still keep their job, right? But Jesus, he's not predicting the weather. He can actually control and speak to the weather. And the disciples are trying to figure this out. They're watching this man walk on the water and they're questioning ghost or God because they have no human experience by what to measure this miracle by. See, when our minds have no cognitive category for what we see, they go on tilt and they try to make sense out of what seems impossible, God or ghost. Matter of fact, there was a famous TED talk where the speaker showed a drawing of two people intimately embracing, and of course, adults recognized it, but kids said it was nine dolphins. And the reason why kids said it was nine dolphins is because they had no cognitive frame of reference for what they were seeing, and so they didn't recognize it. And herein lies the first key to being amazed by God, and that is the reaction of our mind. Normally, we want to do something with what we have no cognitive frame of reference for, and so we do many things. We ignore it. It doesn't fit, and so we just we just ignore it. Or we doubt it. We decide not to believe what we see with our eyes, downgrading our theology to max, match our reality or the reality of our prior experience. Or we excise it. We totally deny its existence and wipe it out from our consideration, like, for example, Thomas Jefferson. Anybody ever hear about the Thomas Jefferson Bible? He wrote his own, by the way. And most people have attempted to like write their own Bible, like Joseph Smith and, you know, all those other religions, right? Who add and add to the Word of God, uh, to their own demise. Thomas Jefferson didn't add to the Word of God. He subtracted from it. Thomas Jefferson actually wiped out everything that had to do with the miraculous in the Bible. He was a fan of the teachings of Jesus. And so all of the teachings of Jesus are in there, but anytime anything miraculous happened, it's not in there. He wiped out the virgin birth. The story of the Gospels ends with the stone being rolled in front of the tomb. There is no resurrection because even though he was a fan of the teachings of Jesus, the morality behind the teachings of Jesus, he was a son of enlightenment. And so he made intellect Lord. And and oftentimes when we make intellect Lord in our life, what we have to wind up doing is excise anything that doesn't fit into our cognitive frame of reference. And so that's what he did. He just pulled out stuff from the Bible and he had his own version of the Bible. And you shouldn't really look at Thomas Jefferson in that tone of voice because there's a lot of you sitting here and a lot of you behind that camera who have ripped out parts of the Bible that don't fit with either your life, your theology, or what you want. And so some of you have wiped out the parts that talk about forgiving. Some of you have wiped out the parts about being in service instead of only online. Some of you have wiped out the parts about putting God first in your tithes and offerings. And so you have a neutered Bible the same way that Thomas Jefferson has a neutered Bible. But how many of you know the Bible that you need is the whole Bible, everything that is written therein, it is written for a purpose that you and I can prevail in life. But he had no cognitive frame of reference. And so what did he do? He tried to, to wipe it out. Or then other people, what they try to do is intellectualize it. And they try to come up with reasons for the miraculous. Have you ever talked to somebody and they say, do you really think that God parted the Red Sea? 
Have you ever heard people say that? They'll try to, and they'll get into all that kind of stuff. And there was actually a paper published in the journal of, and I know if I'm going to pronounce this word right, paleoliminology, which is the study of lakes and other bodies of water. And they came up with an explanation for how Jesus could have walked on the water. Here was their explanation. They, they asserted that under an odd combination of atmospheric conditions, this could have caused rare patches of floating ice on the Sea of Galilee upon which Jesus surfed to where his disciples were, a phenomenon, by the way, that only happens under a very rare set of atmospheric conditions once every thousand years. Now, can you hear what intellectualizing the word of God does? By the way, I think that's a miracle also if that's what happened. That Jesus actually said to them, you go over to the other side. I'll meet you there. I'm going to get there by way of walking on the water. He just happened to know that those atmospheric conditions that are once in a thousand years were going to be there. So he was going to be able to surf on ice in five to 20 foot waves, right, to get where the disciples were and not get knocked off the ice. I mean, to me, that's a miracle. My point is this, that sometimes in becoming wise, we become fools. And you'll watch this happening. This is happening all in our world right now. All in our world, we are becoming wise, but becoming fools, right? We are now at the point where we actually believe that men can have babies. Wise and becoming fools at the same time. We're at a place where we are trying to intellectualize almost anything. There was a person that I saw on Instagram the other day that is now trans-blind. What is trans-blind? Actually maimed themselves so they couldn't see because they felt like they should have been born blind. They call it trans-blind. We have other people who are now trans-disabled. And these are people that believe that they are supposed to identify as being disabled people, even though they are able-bodied people. Do you see, there is no stopping to the madness when we try to intellectualize what the Word of God says, instead of realizing that all these things are the byproduct of sin trying to destroy and mar the creation of Almighty God. And in becoming wise, we become fools. And that's what happens. And that's what these people wrote this paper. Well, he was surfing on ice in five to 20 foot waves, not getting blown off the ice. And that's how he made it three to four miles out to where the disciples were. But there is another choice. And here's how we are going to see God amaze us. And that is to embrace it, to understand that for God to be God he must be able to do what is humanly impossible and that indeed the miracles recorded in the Bible are not made up or meant to be rationalized, but they are meant to testify to the fact that Jesus is indeed God and not confined or limited by what we cannot control, but rather the very one with whom and through whom all things are are, are possible and nothing is impossible. That even though you and I are powerless to fight or change, certain things. That's why there is a God who can do what you and I cannot do. And if you are ever tempted to believe in a God that is limited to the same limitations as human beings, can I submit for your approval that that cannot be God? God has to be bigger. God has to be greater. God has to be more powerful. God has to be more infinite. God has to be that. Otherwise, he's not God. Otherwise, he's just a man. 
What am I telling you? I'm telling you that if God is going to amaze you, that instead of downgrading your theology to match your experience of reality, we must upgrade our reality until it sinks with our theology. We must make room in our reasoning for our God who often defies reasons. Instead of seeing it to believe it, we must get to the point where we believe it so we can see it. I don't know if you all just missed that. We must get to the point where we believe it so that we can see it. The condition to seeing it in the Bible is believing it. Jesus said, when you pray, believe that you receive and you shall have it. He didn't say, wait till you see in order for you to believe so that you can have it. He said, believe it first so that you can see it. And so we must get to a place in our life if we are going to see God amaze us that we believe he can part a Red Sea, that we can believe that he can shut the mouth of a lion, that we believe he'll walk in a fiery furnace and we don't get burnt, that we, we believe that he can calm a storm, that we believe he can heal cancer, that we believe he can free the addict, that we we believe he can provide financially, that we believe he can restore a broken marriage, that we believe he can save a loved one. We need to believe it so that we see it. We cannot have a reasoning that says, ghost or God. We need to understand that that's Jesus. That's what Jesus can do. And that brings me to the second thing that is revealed to us in the story about how God amazes us, indicated by their location. Their location, not not only their reaction, but their location. The text says they have rowed three to four miles from the shore, and so they and, and it's in the middle of the night, and the winds and waves are massive, so that they have lost sight of the shore. And by the way, this is where miracles often happen. Inscribed on the statue of Christopher Columbus. It says this, to the memory of Christopher Columbus, whose high faith and indomitable courage gave to mankind a new world. Columbus and his crew would have never discovered this new world had they not left the old world behind. The most amazing fact may be that prior to this history-changing voyage, not one of his crew members had ever been more than 300 miles offshore. In the words of Nobel laureate Andre Guide, one doesn't discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the shore for a very long time. What am I telling you? Simply this, that miracles don't happen in the shallow end of the pool. They happen in places where you can't touch the bottom. They happen in places where you have no safety net, where you are in so deep that the only way that you are going to make it is if God shows up. Miracles happen when you're out of options. Miracles happen when the circumstances are bigger than us. Miracles happen when we dare to believe God without a backup plan, where we are not half in with a fallback position, but where we are all in without any alternative. When we give our last bit of oil and meal, when we put our Isaac on the altar, when we rip the roof open to lower our friend to Jesus, when we fill the water pots and bring it to the master of ceremony who are expecting wine, when we refuse to bow before the king knowing that there's a fiery furnace, when we pray anyway, even if we know that we're getting thrown into the lion's den, where we stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go, where we wet the wood before we call down fire from heaven. Miracle don't happen in the shallow end. 
they happen when you, when you lose sight of the shore. And there, there are too many people who, who, are, who are cautious in their believing God. And when you're cautious, it means you've got a fallback position. It means you've got a backup plan. God doesn't do backups. The only types of backups God, do, God does is when he backs you up. But God's not looking for you to set up a plan to back him up. Because anytime you set up a plan to back God up, it means that you have a doubt in your heart as to whether or not God will come true and the Bi- come through. And the Bible says that any man who doubts should not think he shall receive anything of the Lord for a double-minded man's unstable in all his way. God wants us all in. Their position, their location tells us that miracles don't happen in the shallow end. But then I want you to notice the next thing, and, and this is powerful, because not only does their location tell us that they are far from the shore, but their location is three to four miles, let's call it three and a half miles from the shore. The Sea of Galilee is only seven and a half miles wide. So they are in the middle, literally, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And this brings me to the third amazing insight, their fight. The middle, nobody likes the middle, by the way. We dread the middle seat on the plane, right? You have to get uh, there first so you can get the armrest. You have to put noise-canceling headphones on because you can get your, t- your ear talked off on both sides. You-, you have to get up and go to the bathroom before the plane takes off. Otherwise, you disturb two people. Nobody likes the middle. Our biggest challenge in life is with our midsection. Who likes to be in the middle of a crowd when there's no way out? Uh, men and women go crazy midlife crisis. There's old school that has charm. There's new school that's vogue. But nobody likes middle school. Nobody says, I'm going middle school right now. And middle school, by the way, whenever you talk about it's the awkward stage of life freckles and puberty and growing into your big feet and all of that kind nobody likes the middle the middle the middle is the problem the middle is even stigmatized you know the middle child and even god says the middle is not a good place for you to be i would that you are hot or cold but because you are in the middle because you are lukewarm i'll spew you out of my mouth nobody likes the middle but it is in the middle where miracles are made the middle is the place in life where you, where you decide to forge your destiny. It, it's not the wedding day or the 25th year anniversary that is difficult. It's the middle that makes a marriage. It's not the first day of wife or uh, 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 of work or the day that you're retiring at the retirement that makes it difficult. It's climbing the corporate ladder in the middle. It's not our initial ability to dream or the joy of seeing the dream come to pass that is difficult. It is the grind in the middle that makes it difficult. It's not the beginning it's not the end it is the middle where the miracle takes place because in the middle is where we decide to fight and forge forward or let the oars go and get pushed back to shore again what I think is astounding about this is because of the waves the Bible we're going to look at this the waves were against them 
And so they were rowing real hard and going nowhere. They got to as far as they could go on their own. That's a whole message by itself. They got only to the middle and now they're fighting. And the wind and the waves are against them. And they could have let go of the oars and it would have pushed them right back to the shore. In life you can let go when it gets difficult when you're in the middle or you can continue to fight. Matter of fact, in Mark or Matthew chapter 11, the scripture tells us this same story. It says, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Mark says he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against him. And when you realize that it was in the third or fourth watch, which basically means the middle of the night, you begin to ask yourself, why are they still on the sea? Seven and a half miles should have been able to do that in under an hour. But they're in the middle of the sea and they're stuck there. Why? Because they have decided to keep fighting as the winds is against them. As they are being, instead of giving up, Jesus gave them a command. He said, go to the other side. And instead of letting the oars go and falling back because it got difficult, guess what they did? They fought even though they weren't going anywhere. Can I talk to the people? who are stuck in the middle. You thought you'd be further along by this time, but you're still fighting. You're rowing so hard, and you don't understand why your oars are not responding to your effort, but you're still fighting. Should have been further along in your marriage, but you're still fighting. Should have been further along in your career, still fighting. Should have been further along in your finances, still fighting. Should have been further along in your dreams, still fighting. Fighting, but stuck in the middle... Because the oars are not responding to your effort. Here's God's word for you. Keep rowing. Don't let go of the oars. Don't let it push you back to where you've traveled so far from. They were three and a half miles from shore. They weren't where they wanted to be, but they're not where they started from. Don't let difficulty cause you to lose the progress that you have already made. The scripture says it like this. Don't grow weary in well-doing. For in due season you will reap if you faint not. It says the kingdom of God suffers violence but the violent take it by force it says but when you've done all to stand stand therefore what should you stand until you should stand until your help shows up stand until your help shows up make a determination when the bible says when you've done all to stand stand therefore literally what it means is face to face and eyeball the eyeball against the devil See, the devil will put stuff in your way to get you to stop. And some of you need to make a decision. Devil, I'm stuck, but I'm not quitting. Devil, I might not be where I want to be, but I'm going to still fight. Devil, you may have got me frozen in time like on FaceTime, but I'm not going back. I'm not going back to where I used to be, may not be where I want to be, and I'm going to fight until my help shows up because Jesus is a water walker the middle. The next thing that we see is told to us or revealed to us in the appearance of Jesus. I want you to notice God eventually showed up. And let's look at why. Mark chapter number six, same story, different different author. Mark 
and, and Matthew give different details about the story. It's not because the story happened the way one told it and not the way the other told it because you always have skeptics trying to find out well, the Bible's not consistent here and here. If you hear two stories about something from the same person, one will give you greater details than the other, especially if one's a man and one's a woman. If you listen to a woman tell a story, it's a 10-hour story, and it's got millions of details in it. If you listen to a man tell a story, it's 10 minutes, and it's exempt of all the details. The woman's story may even be a better story. It's got many more details, but it's not that one happened this way and one happened that way. It's that the perspective of the individual, and the perspective of John, by the way, was to magnify the deity of Jesus. And so the focus is squarely on him. But Mark says this, later that night, The boat was in the middle of the lake. He was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Notice the phrase, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against him. Shortly before uh, dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. Now, this tells me that the seeing happened before the walking. This tells me that from three and a half to four miles away, in the pitch black, when the winds were high and the waves were five to 20 feet high, Jesus saw the struggle of the disciples. And because Jesus saw the struggle, but he also witnessed the fight, it was just a matter of time before Jesus showed up. See, the Bible calls him Jehovah Roi, which means the God that sees. I want to talk to people right now who are struggling in a season. I want to talk to people right now who are fighting and the wind is against you and you don't understand what is going on. I want you to know that God sees and if you'll just fight and keep fighting and keep rowing, it is just a matter of time before he comes walking on the water, walking into the storm, into your situation. Because God sees. Keep on fighting until God shows up in your life. The the next thing I want to see you, and I think this, well, two more things. The fifth Amazing truth is found in the instruction he gives. He tells them, go over to the other side. Go over to the other side. They are fighting because he gave them an instruction. But then notice also in Matthew, he includes another detail, which I think is an amazing instruction. And this is kind of like the second half of the story, which again, John doesn't get into. And the reason why John doesn't get into it is because John is not trying to put the focus on Peter. In the second half of the story, Peter walks on the water. But in John's gospel, there is no mention of that. It's not because John made a mistake and and Matthew caught the mistake. It's because John said, my gospel is all about the deity of Christ. And that wasn't the purpose necessarily of Matthew. And so when we come to Matthew, Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, it says, in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear, like little girls. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, be good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter 
had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? When most people read this story, you know what they focus on? Pastor Peter Peter doubted. Pastor Peter sank. Pastor Peter almost drowned. Yeah, but wait a second. But Peter walked on water. See, see, you can look at what happened to Peter as a result of him getting out of the boat. Or you can look at what Peter did as a result of walking out on just one word from Jesus. How many of you know Jesus didn't give him a dissertation? Jesus didn't give him an explanation. Jesus didn't give him a paragraph. He said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. You know what Jesus said? He said, come. Can I tell you how you see God amaze you in life? You have enough faith to walk out on just one word from God. You don't need a paragraph. You don't need a dissertation. You don't need an explanation. If God said it, you need to trust God enough to step out on the one word that God has spoken. And God is all about one word sometimes. God is about go. God is about stay. God is about forgive. God is about repent. God is about about leave. God is about win. God is about now. God is about one word. Do you have enough faith to step out on just one word from God? And if you will dare to take a word from God and step on it, guess what will happen? You'll walk on water. Yeah, but, 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 but Peter, but Peter, pastor, he sunk, but he, but he walked on water. See, water walkers are not afraid about making mistakes. Water walkers would rather make a mistake than miss out on everything that God has. Can I just be real with you? Sometimes you just got to do it even if you don't feel like doing it. Sometimes, I love Peter. I love Peter. Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. His brother, Simon Andrew, right? His brother, Simon Andrew, he probably looked at him. He said, ha, ha, look at you. You sank. Peter probably fired back, but I took a few steps on the water. Now I know the next time. Now I know the next time that if I don't doubt what God said, if I, if I, if I keep my eyes on Jesus, I won't just take a few steps, but the next time I'll just keep walking and keep walking and keep walking. Why? Because I dare to step out on a word. If you want to see God amaze you, will you step out on just one word from God? He stepped out on the word. But then I love the way that the story ends. The invitation. Then they willingly received him into their boat. I love the, I love the phraseology of this. It doesn't say then Jesus stepped into their boat. It would have been okay if it said that. It said, but then they willingly received him into their boat. Love it. And immediately the boat was on land where they were going. This seems so elementary that I almost feel ashamed to mention it to you. Until I realize how chronically human we are, insisting oftentimes how we can do it on our own, how we can figure it out on our own, 
How we can muscle up on our own. How we can make it happen on our own. How we can will our way to the other side or through the circumstances or through the issue or through the challenge or through the obstacle. But the boat was stuck until they willingly received Jesus into their boat. I want to tell somebody, everything changes when you willingly receive Jesus into your boat. When you willingly invite God into the situation. See, some people, you need to stop having shame in your struggle. You need to have no shame in saying you can't help yourself. No shame in saying you can't get to the other side by yourself. No shame in saying that you need Jesus to do what you need to do. You need Jesus every moment, every hour, every hour I need him. I need him when I wake up. I need him when I am up. I need him when I'm rich. I need him when I'm poor. I need him when I'm down. I need him when I'm up. I need him when I'm struggling. I need him when all life is going. Why? Because everything changes when you call on the name of Jesus. When you just call his name, things change. When you just call, invite Jesus into the boat of your circumstance, the boat of your marriage, the boat of your finances, the boat of your addiction. God, I can't do it by myself, but everything changes when we call on Jesus.